Hello and welcome to this edition of the Maidan podcast. I'm Peter Mandeville from the Ali Vorlach Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University. Today we'll be speaking with Shahed Amanullah, someone whose career spans the technology industry, government, and media. Uh, Shahed has been a truly pioneering figure with respect to the interface between technology uh, and religion, um, more specifically, someone who has been a shaker and mover in starting a wide range of online applications, websites, and businesses uh, that look specifically at the interface of uh, technology and Muslim identity. So we'll be having a wide-ranging conversation with Shahid today, uh, including his plans to develop applications uh, that he hopes may um, challenge some of the more traditional ways of thinking about religious authority and who gets to speak for Islam and define the religion for Muslims around the world today. So join us for this edition of the Maidan podcast. All right, good. So we're rolling. Um, so Shahed Amanullah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this is Maidan, uh, and we have a conversation this morning focused on the broad theme of Muslim tech. Um, and in our conversation today, we're going to be talking about all kinds of things from how young Muslims think about how and where technology fits into their religious lives, to the emergence of Muslim consumer markets, to your current work with Affinis Labs. But first, can you tell your listeners a little bit about who you are, your background, some of the cool things you've started? Just give us like your one minute CV. Sure. I, I think the best way to understand uh, my life is to um, understand all the things that converged in one place and one time. I was growing up in Southern California and then found myself in Silicon Valley right when the internet started. And so I had a very deep kind of connection to my community and my culture, but it was also an identity that was shifting and changing. And so as that shifting, changing Muslim identity collided with the birth of the internet, um, it was a perfect storm. And out of that came the development of multiple different properties that were geared toward both serving Muslim communities in the West and abroad, but also shaping what it means to be Muslim in a day where technology is rapidly becoming a part of all of our lives. Cool. So what what are some of the kind of entry points for you in terms of thinking about how you were going to marry technology with your culture and your faith? Well, I think let's look at the birth of the internet as kind of a dividing line between uh, that divides up the Muslim community of old and the Muslim community of new. And I use that word very loosely. I mean, Muslim communities and I mean, in a global sense and a local sense as well, but I'm going to focus on the local and then take it global. Sure. Um, Muslim communities have existed in their own little bubbles for pretty much since the beginning of Islam. It's, it's, it's the reason why you have different schools of thought, you know, regionally based. It's, it's why you have different sects that kind of existed alongside each other, but didn't really kind of interfere with each other. But what technology did is that technology took down all the barriers. It also took down the perception that there was an authority or authorities that you would have to hook your identity to. And a whole generation of Muslims growing up in America and then increasingly around the world 
felt unmoored from that old system because technology, what it did for them is that it introduced them to all the information in the world about their faith and about their identity. And it allowed them, in fact, forced them to ask questions that they never would have asked before and to meet people that are very different from them and that challenge their perception of what is a Muslim and what is Islam. And that was a very destabilizing force. And out of that, you had very many different reactions. I mean, I, I think that the rise of jihadism um, coincides with the rise of technology being able to disrupt people. But, you know, for the vast majority, for the masses, I think technology has had a, over time, cumulatively positive effect in that it's forced us to accept and understand that we are part of a plurality. It's forced us to deal with difficult issues that we swept under the rug. It's forced us to realize that we are, we are parts of a whole and that we are not either neither to be dominated or to dominate, but to coexist. And it's been, it's been a painful learning curve um, over the last uh, two decades where people have had to face their fears, face hatred, face their inner demons. But out of that is coming a much more confident community. And I believe that we're at a turning point now where we've had this whirling sandstorm of issues and conversations, but out of that is now coming a confidence. And now people are asking what's next? What does the Islam of the 21st century look like? What do Muslim communities of the 21st century look like? Why are we here? Why do we matter? What are we bringing to the world? And then, of course, how do we use technology to amplify that and to apply that? These are the kind of existential questions that inform both me and the communities of entrepreneurs and innovators that I interact with on a daily basis. Okay, that's that's great. And we're going to, I think, drill down into some of those points that you've raised in a little bit more detail later on. But, you know, I, I wanted to kind of begin at your beginning in the sense that, you know, you've been associated with some of the most prominent and most widely used um, applications, uh, websites, you know, that that have been designed to serve m Muslim communities, certainly in the United States, but but more broadly, um, you know, uh, websites focused on helping people, you know, locate sources for halal food, but also just spaces of engagement and discussion and spaces where perspectives outside the realm of what might be considered religious orthodoxy, you know, could be, be voiced. So, you know, could we sort of take you back in time to, you know, a Shahadamanullah in, I assume at some point in the 1990s, yeah. who's figuring out, all right, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm working in technology. Um, I am an entrepreneur, so I'm going to develop something that is at the interface of my faith and where I am and technology. And so what did you do? Sure. What did that look like? So let's go chronologically. Um, I found myself in Silicon Valley in the mid nineties. Uh, I dove into the startup scene. It was something that was fascinating to me. And as I was cycling through startups that, you know, failed or succeeded in one way or the other, I would start to do side projects that I thought, how can I marry this amazing new space with my Muslim identity? And so the first, project that I created was a project called Zabiha, 
which is now nearly 20 years old. Uh, it was the first kind of guide to halal restaurants. It was actually the second, it's the second oldest guide to restaurants of any kind on the web. It predates Yelp by six years. Wow. Um, but the whole point of that was, you know, I, I, people were just trading in emails and things like that, different restaurants that served halal food. Um, but I figured, why not I just throw this up on the web and see if other people can benefit from it and see if other people have any ideas. And what I found is that, you know, a decade before crowdsourcing became a term, we were crowdsourcing and we started with 200 restaurants in America in 1998 and grew to like seven to 8,000 today. And what's really interesting about that is that I caught it at a time where a wave was starting because, you know, the growth of halal restaurants in this country uh, is not proportional to the growth of the population in this country. What it is proportional to is the growth of confidence and market identity of Muslims in this country. And to catch that wave at the very beginning and to ride that wave to where we are today, it's a fascinating picture at the development of a community uh, through 9-11 and through all the trials and tribulations, but it's a story of success. And to be able to do that and you know serve people through 700,000 downloaded apps and 10 million unique users a year of people using it all over the world. Zabia is now a global force. It's the world's largest halal restaurant guide. Um, and it is the is a space where a whole industry has been created. Where people, where people went from serving halal food kind of on the side to owning it, owning the term in confidence, and then to people on the, who are outside the Muslim communities seeking to to get into that market because there's money there. Yeah. And so so that was a really empowering thing for me to do. Um, fast forward a little bit to 9-11. I had already been planning to do a website called Alt Muslim before 9-11 happened, but 9-11 really accelerated that because 9-11 was a very existential moment for Muslims in the West. It was a time where where we were kind of asked the question, if if you your identity now will either be taken over by the people who did this act and the people who are fighting the people who did this act, or you're going to own it. And you have a choice. You can walk away from that identity or you can double down on that identity. And thankfully, Muslims in the West doubled down on that identity. And Alt-Muslim was, was launched in, um, I think, a month after 9-11 um, to take advantage of that. So if we're going to own our identity, how does that, what does that mean? What it means is that instead of being defensive about our world, you know, truly confident people will own their, their mistakes, will own their errors, will own their flaws. Um, people who are not confident will try to hide them and cover them up. And I felt that the only way we're going to survive this is if we create a space where we can address issues and own issues. I'm convinced that most people don't want to don't want to be convinced that we're good. They just want to be convinced that we're human. And unfortunately for a lot of people, that's a step up from what they think of us. Yeah. So we used to embrace very difficult conversations in there and conversations that were dealing with issues between Muslims and their neighbors, but also dealing with issues within Muslim communities, things like domestic violence and, and other things that were racism, things that were very difficult to talk about. And, and, and until that point, to my memory, had not been talked about. Um, and what we found is that while it was a very destabilizing thing, a lot of people in the very beginning when we launched were saying, you have to do this now 
we're embattled, we're being beat upon by everybody, and you're now joining in. And it wasn't until they realized that I was doing this as a means of seizing the conversation from them and bringing it back to our position and owning that conversation, because we will be able to deal with these issues far better than other people will, that people started to see the power in it. So what were some of the themes and moments in the early days of alt-Muslim that, that kind of, that created the largest amount of controversy? And so one of them was the, was the nature of religious discourse in our communities. So okay. the idea that ordinary people could ask questions that frankly scholars had only asked before. Yeah. Not in not to be disrespectful or not to be, you know, nihilistic, but because they wanted to extract from it something that was meaningful to them. Because, you know, they found a dissonance between the way they were living their lives as Muslims and what they were reading. Right. There were people that said, I want to be a good person, but the way I'm interpreting what you're telling me, I have to not be good in order to follow that. And yeah. I refuse to go that way. And as a matter of fact, I, not only do I refuse to go that way, I refuse to believe that Islam wants to make me a merciless person. Yeah. Right. And so these conversations of inclusion, of compassion, of mercy, of, of acceptance of people in a time where we are fighting for acceptance from the greater society, it became the people leading their own conversation about their identity. Because I believe that in the few years after 9-11, I think of a lot of the scholarly community didn't know how to respond. It was such an overwhelming issue with so many overwhelming facets that at some point playing this defensive wall of saying Islam is peace and you don't understand didn't go very far. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't stop the fire. But ordinary people dealing with those issues and talking about extremism and talking about hostile ideologies and, you know, tying it to things inside Muslim communities. Well, what about the division between Sunnis and Shias? Why, why are we tolerating people being angry in our mosques? Why are we tolerating gender apartheid in our mosques? Like we've just put up with it for now, till now. Why are we doing that? And, and, and just, to, just to even start that conversation, you go from people being angry with you to people being quiet, to people quietly agreeing with you, to people being your allies. And all that happens within 10 years of having this conversation. So just in the in, in the short time after 9-11, again, not just taking all the credit, there were multiple other people trying to do this and society was moving us in this direction as well. I think that the American Muslim population and mirrored closely by Western, Western Muslim populations in other places, grew to be a strong, confident community within 10 years um, and frankly, ready for the second wave of Islamophobia that happened after 9-11 that started to happen, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, um, where where opinion of Muslims went up and then went back down again. Yeah. But interestingly enough, we're in a very different position today than we were in the days after 9-11, yeah. where we have allies, we have confidence, we're not scared, we're not bowed, we're, we're, not, we're not broken by these people. Yeah. And I think that's a direct result of the fact that the masses embraced leadership through their conversations. And that's why these, that's why having these open conversations are so valuable. Only confident people can do that. And so you can become confident through that and then you can express your confidence through that. So you raised just now, Shahid, the issue of gender segregation in mosques. Huge issue in the community, obviously. And that sort of leads me to 
um, of course, mention that there wasn't just alt-Muslim, but then soon alt-Muslima. Yes. Could you talk a little bit about kind of how you understood or understand the division of labor or the relationship between those two spaces? And of course, it's a really interesting question to bring up at a time when, you know, the aftermath of the Harvey Weinstein scandal and everything that's come, we should mention to our listeners that that Muslim communities have not been untouched by these same issues. There are right. a number of fairly prominent leadership figures in the community that have um, had uh, similar kinds of accusations leveled against them. So it'd be great to hear a little bit oh, about th that, that issue. And we used to deal with gender issues quite a bit in alt-Muslim, but there were people who... Um, who felt, rightfully so, that there were so many things to unpack with respect to gender and Islam that it required its own site. And so I worked with a group of women to build um, Alt Muslima. Um, uh, I ran it actually for several years before spinning it out. Um, uh, you know, but just but as a but as a as a worker bee, right? It wasn't mine to editorially do. I was simply lending the power of my technology to allow people to take their own voices and express them. I was just, I was just, I was in the back room. <laughs> um, but it was necessary to do this. Uh, the founders of Alt-Muslima felt it was necessary to do this because first of all, A, they needed to take control of their own con conversation and their own narrative. B, it was probably one of the areas within American Muslim communities that needed the most unpacking. Um, it was the place where we had the farthest to go. Um, and the great thing about technology and the way technology has affected the world in general, but Muslim communities in particular, is that authority doesn't mean anything anymore. Is that you don't need to go through existing channels in order to project your power. And just as alt-Muslim was, was a means of going, bypassing the existing authorities to create a space where people can think, think and talk for themselves, alt-Muslim did that for Muslim women. And... You know, alt-Muslim, you know, spawned alt-Muslima, alt-Muslima spawned another three or four sites that are dealing with gender in different in different ways, but all addressing the same issues. Um, I used to tell people when I started alt-Muslim that if you wanted to create a competitor to my site, I would give you my server space to do it. Yeah. Because I think it's important to have a thousand voices out there and I don't want to own all, all of them and there should not be one point of failure. So, so speaking of a thousand voices, you know, at some point, I mean, I guess roughly coterminous with the period you're talking about now, there began to be something like a sort of Muslim blogging scene. Yes. And, you know, could you talk a little bit about how that related to some of the issues around um, the sort of forging and the voicing of, of new Muslim identities, particularly among Muslims living in like Europe and North America? Sure. Um, in 2003, I founded with a gentleman named Aziz Punawala, the Brass Crescent Awards. And the Brass Crescent Awards ran for 13 or 14 years. It stopped. Um, we stopped running it two years ago, and I'll explain why. Um, and the idea was to highlight the best Muslim writing on the web and to bring to the fore voices from within this plurality that maybe other people had still been in their bubbles had not heard of. And we had multiple categories. We had categories for, you know, you know, humor, news, things like that uh, for gender. And we had categories also for bloggers in other countries because we also wanted, we didn't want Western voices to drown out voices that were emerging from really important places around the world. Um, it was a place where some 
fairly controversial writings came about um, where a lot of people who are now full-fledged journalists cut their teeth um, mm. at the blogging scene. If you look at Muslim voices that you'll find on the evening news, a lot of them started blogging by blogging. Um, you know, uh, people like Rabia Chadre, who's a, you know, podcaster extraordinaire now, you know, started out by blogging. People like Wajahad Ali started out by blogging. Um, so we wanted to highlight that that space, not just be, to give credit to these to these writers, but to also inspire another generation of people to to fearlessly go out there and, and express their voices. Now, one of the reasons that we shut down the awards two years ago is because social media um, really changed the landscape. It's going to be my next question is what was the impact of oh, social media? Oh, it was incredible. And what blogging did to the real world community, uh, what blogging did to the real world community, social media did to the blogging community, where people went from long form writing on blogs, which is time consuming and it takes a while, to expressing their thoughts on anything at any particular time and just being much more, you know, rough around the edges, mm -hmm. but honest and, mm -hmm. and, 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 and timely. And it's much harder to categorize and catalog that space compared to the blogging space. So as fewer people blogged and more people started using social media, um, it became, it became more difficult to curate the best of it. Cause how do you curate the best of tweet? Like there's a million tweets out there. How do you curate the best, you know, Facebook posts. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. Um, but that's, that's a maturity of the platform and it's the maturity of the community. So now, for example, you alluded to, for example, issues that are happening in Muslim communities, the whole me too movement has, has not spared Muslim communities, Yeah. but all that happened through social media. Right. I mean, one of the lessons I think we've learned from me too, is that when everybody has the power to project their voice onto a global scene, that nobody can hide from their actions and nobody can hide from having to answer for what they've done. And, and that's on balance a good thing. I mean, we look at people like Malala Yousafzai, right? Malala was a blogger. Yeah. And she became a globally known figure because of the consequences of her blogging. So what I'm asking of people is to not be afraid of the space, not to be afraid of technology, not to be afraid to encounter what's ugly about this world through social media, because you can also project what's great about this world in social media. You can also inspire people. You can also make people feel like their life has meaning. Yeah. And that's, and that's why, you know, as we morph and we change, you know, we go from, you know, I focused my time on Alt-Muslim and Zabia, and I find now that I'm having to shift my time and attention to other uses of technology because I think that we have a long way to go to empower people. And I want to take the next step from talking to doing. Yeah. So, you know, just in, in having you talk us through some of the specific um, applications and tools and sites that you've been involved in developing, we kind of already naturally began to hit on some of the um, so some of the questions that I'd wanted to get into about the impact of technology and the internet on how young Muslims think about identity, but also questions like religious authority. Um, so I wanted to pivot now to kind of some broader questions of that sort. And I, you know, I was going to thinking of, you know, starting by asking you, 
you know, how young Muslims use tech today. But I mean, it's kind of a dumb question because the basic answer is they use tech the same way everyone else uses tech. So I guess maybe a better way of asking it would be to ask, you know, how young Muslims think about the relationship between technology and their religious lives? How, how does technology mediate their sense of Muslimness? One issue that I've been really interested in, and it's funny because you and I kind of got started looking at these issues at around the same time, kind of me kind of thinking about what effect will the internet have you know, on traditional structures of authority within the Muslim world? Are we going to see a sort of democratization of Islamic knowledge production? You know, and so the 90s were, you know, like, like a lot of internet culture was full of a lot of hopeful, yeah. um, you know, sort of utopian thinking about the transformative effect of this. And then we found pretty quickly that some of the more orthodox voices, you know, had also figured out how to use these technologies. Yeah. So I, I'd love to hear your reflection on kind of those sorts of questions. Um, yeah, sadly, we went from dancing chipmunks to severed heads. Right. <laughs> um, it, it, it's been an existential time for Muslims. I mean, a lot of that, other, by the way, is what we're going to call the podcast from dancing chipmunks <laughs> yeah, to severed please. heads. <laughs> yeah. Leave my name out of that. Um, no, it's, it's, what's really interesting is that I think we've, we've, we've entered into a very existential time for this generation of Muslims. They're truly asking themselves not just what does it mean to be Muslim, but why should I even be a Muslim? Like, what do I have to contribute to the world? Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people, because social media is such a fire hose of information, and because so much of it is bad information. I mean, you know, negative and violent information travels much faster in online spaces than nice information. It's just the nature of the internet. It favors jarring speech. Um, and a lot of people have been very destabilized by that. I mean, there are a lot of people that see the ugliness that comes from a lot of the geopolitical strife that we have today. They attribute it to their faith. And they're like, if this is what my faith is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Right? So my challenge to people is, if you believe like I do, that Islam has something good to give to you and your community, and, it, and, that, and if you believe that it has something good to give to society, then now is the time to articulate that and project that. Because if you don't, we're going to see this entire experiment start to dissolve. And the, the voices of hate and fear and intolerance will take over because you can't just cede the space to them. I mean, this is, in, by the way, n by no means unique to the Muslim community. I mean, the rise of the alt-right sure. is, the, is sure. the parallel to this. Yeah is that we can all leave the internet to the trolls or we can get on there and show them that there's a better way. We can go back to the days of the rainbow unicorns and stuff like that. Right. But it has to be different today. People don't want just, you know, feel good stuff. They want to know how, how can I embrace this identity and use it to make the world a better place? Yeah. We have to go from talking to doing. Yeah. And what people are missing right now is they're missing that path. Okay, great. How do I do this? How do I put this in action? Yeah. How do I leverage my faith, amplify it with technology and impact the world around me and make it a better place? Now, part of it is the expression of ideas, mm -hmm. right? Which we've been doing now for 15, 20 years. Yeah. And we're continuing to do in the Twitter sphere and, and other places. I, and I think to some degree of success. Um, but the next step is, is putting these values in place. I mean, this is what, we're focusing on at Venice Labs, putting these values in place with respect to the economy, 
with respect to entrepreneurship, yeah. with respect to creating jobs and livelihood for people, with respect to keeping, to getting people to take control of their own economic destiny and to do it in a way that doesn't leave their identity behind. As a matter of fact, my hope and dream and wish for these people is to take Muslim identity and make it a competitive advantage in business. So you mentioned Affinis Labs, and I want to ask you in a moment a little bit about that current you know, focus of, of your work. But I wonder if, if you could cite a few examples of people that are doing things now that you think kind of represent and embody. Oh, that. my goodness. Fantastic question. Um, I'll give you a great example. Um, Chris Abdurrahman Blauvelt of LaunchGood. LaunchGood has been around for a few years. It's the world's largest faith-based crowdfunding platform. Yeah. And over the last five years has raised $30 million from prim primarily Muslims around mm -hmm. the world, but for causes that don't necessarily affect only Muslims. Yeah. So some of their most notable crowdfunding campaigns over the last few years have been raising $200,000 to rebuild black churches in the South that have been burned down in arson attacks, yeah. raising money for the victims of San Bernardino in Orlando. Uh, raising uh, a quarter of a million dollars to repair Jewish cemeteries that were vandalized yep. by, by the right-wing extremists. Um, this is something that's only possible with the internet. This is only something that's only possible with social media. This is something that is a that has been incredibly empowering for those participating in it. And it's also been incredibly disruptive to media narratives about how Muslims interact with their neighbors. Yeah. It's become kryptonite to Islamophobes. Yeah. They look at that and they and they can't write it off as some PR thing. And they're like, wow, you actually did that. Yeah. And like you did it in this kind of mass, like it wasn't just one person doing it, it was thousands of people doing it. Yeah. Buying into this. Yeah. Um, this is a perfect example of of a person putting Muslim values in action amplified by technology to benefit more than just their community. Yeah. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do with all of the entrepreneurs that I counsel is to try to find ways to leverage what's special and unique about Muslims, but for the greater good. Yeah. And so we're, we're, we're cultivating startups, we're mentoring companies, we're raising uh, venture capital, all of the above just to, to, to help drive this, not just in America, but around the world. So this is a natural segue because you're starting to use a lot of we're doing this and we're doing that kind of language. So so you were one of the founders of Affinis Labs, what, mm -hmm. which is, I, I, you know, I think fair to describe as your primary professional focus right now, I, yes. although you're someone I know who always has yeah. umpteen things going on at the same time. So what what is Affinis Labs? Where, 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 what's its background? What's its origins? What is it doing now? So good question, because Affinis Labs is multiple things and uh, like any good innovative startup is constantly pivoting and redefining in order to serve its market better. Uh, it was founded by myself and my colleague Quentin Wiktorowicz who was a senior director at the White House and while I was a senior advisor at the State Department. And for our academic audience is yes. someone very well known as a as a political sociologist of the right. Middle East. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and he and I uh, having left government and me going back into the startup scene and him trying to start up a consulting company, we realized that we, we were both focusing on these global Muslim communities. We were focusing on young people and focusing on how they can leverage their energy for good, for good. And that our skill sets really complemented each other. He'd worked on a lot of innovation projects. I was knee deep in the global Muslim economy, global Islamic economy. Um, and so we decided to put our heads together and, and come up with ways to help 
drive and accelerate what we saw as a nascent movement within this young global cohort of Muslim entrepreneurs. And so we've applied many different tools to that space. I mean, one is simply just being an epicenter for Muslim startups and helping them get up off the ground, you know, both logistically, but also kind of in terms of their strategy. Second is that we would work with partners like Facebook and Google to try to do innovative projects like hackathons and prize competitions around the world to try to stimulate new ideas in spaces that were, you know, basically communities coming up with either businesses or nonprofit initiatives that would serve the needs of their community in ways that no one else could come up with. And so we've experimented with multiple different versions of this, doing it in an Islamic context, doing it in a mainstream context, working on issues like hate, um, working on like things like fake news, um, working on helping entrepreneurs come up with new business ideas that serve their communities. And we've kind of settled on a couple of spaces. And okay. so we're part of a global cohort now of entrepreneurs who are creatives from everywhere from Australia to England to Dubai to Pakistan, who are increasingly seeking each other's counsel and help in, 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 in building businesses within this space. Um, uh, we are launching our own startups from within Affinis Labs. Um, we're, we're working on apps and platforms that, for example, help entrepreneurs start businesses in very marginalized communities and spaces. So we've done a project called Minbar in Tunisia and Somalia. We're seeking to take it to places like Libya and Pakistan and other places, places where it's, it's you know, we take it entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship for granted here, but it's not that easy in some of these other places. They have issues with capital and mentorship and things like that. We want to use technology to to bypass things like the Muslim ban, yeah, right? Um, which is one of the reasons we did in Somalia. Like, well, if we can't bring Somalis here, guess what? We're going to bring mentorship and capital to you. We're going to do it in online spaces and yeah. make it in a way that's transparent and protective. Um, we're working on, on, on new fintech initiatives. Um, we have a fintech initiative that's coming out of here called Zakatify, mm. which interestingly enough, we're launching for the Muslim market. And then very shortly after we launch for the Muslim market, hopefully by Q1 of next year, we're going to launch it for the mainstream market because it's an idea that doesn't exist for either. Yeah. But in the Muslim space, it has a particular energy about it yeah. that we wanted to leverage and then use that energy to power the mainstream version when it comes out and we will do little else than change the name. Yeah. And, and this is an example of buy Muslims for everybody, which is kind of underlies a lot of the projects that we do here. Yeah. Um, getting ourselves from a space where like early Muslim startups were kind of this walled garden approach. Let's mm -hmm. separate ourselves from the world. Let's mm -hmm. do our own Muslim Facebook, our own Muslim YouTube. Let's, 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 let's partition ourselves from the rest of the world, which I think is a, is a horrible way to go. It's very counterproductive, both in terms of Muslim development, but also the relationship between Muslims and the communities that they're in. We want to flip that on its head, buy Muslims for everybody. So when you look at companies like the Halal Guys, yeah, you know, Halal Guys, unapologetically Muslim, unapologetically Halal, less than 5% of their customer base is Muslim. Yep. But it was that Muslim audience that gave them their initial energy. Yeah. Look at Saffron Road, the fastest growing ethnic food uh, line in America. Yeah. Similarly, very small part of their portion portion of their audience is Muslim, but Muslim identity was leveraged to create something that had mass appeal. So when we look at companies like them, when we look at the launch goods of the world and others, uh, emerging companies that are coming out that are going to, you're going to be hearing about very soon yeah. in the coming year, um, I think it's going to be the beginning of a revolution within young Muslim communities around the world. We've got incredible amounts of talent and innovation that have been completely underutilized. 
And, and with that is going to come a new narrative about Islam in the world, a new narrative about Muslim identity, yep. where people are going to start, stop thinking about the, the geopolitical nightmares yeah. and start thinking about this ascendant market of 1.6 billion people from which you have like true entrepreneurial leaders that everyone can benefit from. So a couple of times now you've mentioned things like the launching uh, things for the Muslim market. And at one point you said, you know, I was knee deep in the global Islamic economy. Now, you know, I, I won't surprise our listeners to know that there is such a thing as the global Islamic economy, but I, I don't, I'm not sure that they, many of them necessarily know exactly what it is and what it looks like. Obviously it's large enough that you know, some of the largest mainstream investment banks have Sharia compliant operations. You know, there are multiple advertising and PR firms such as Ogilvy Noor that are specifically, you know, targeting uh, Muslim consumer segments. So I wonder if you could say something about that global Islamic economy and the Muslim market, what it looks like, how it's evolving, what trends do you see? Sure. Well, the, the idea of a global Islamic economy emerged kind of around when the internet emerged where people realize that instead of looking at global Muslim communities as individual markets with their own individual needs, that as the internet started to normalize a global identity, as people were starting to interact with each other, that they are now able to act as a common market. That their identity is, you know, when I look at young people around the world and Muslim communities around the world, young Muslims have more in common with their counterparts around the world than their own parents because they're starting to create an identity that transcends these borders. And so now of, out of that is emerging this global market that can't be ignored. That is upwardly mobile. That is, that is, that, that deeply cares about its identity and wants its identity reflected in the products and services that it, that it consumes. That wants to be a part of it in terms of entrepreneurs emerging from that space, serving each other by us for us, that kind of thing. And so this idea of the global market economy or global Islamic economy kind of emerged. Now, what does that mean logistically? Well, it means different things to different people. I mean, mm. people talk about the three Fs, food, fashion, finance. Right. Right. Um, and that's a very narrow way to look at the global Islamic economy. Some, some people look at the global Islamic economy as an identity marker, kind of like how would you market to the Latino community or the LGBT community? Well, let's market to Muslims in that same way. That's a very superficial way of looking at it. You know, it's like, let's put a hijab on a woman in an ad and therefore now we're targeting that community. Right. As opposed to what I believe it is, which is the pr that the products and services have values deeply embedded in them that resonate with this community. They're not, I, I think that global Muslim consumers are not necessarily looking for some Eid Mubarak ad to get them to buy something. What they're, what they want to see is they want to see products and services that reflect their values and that make them feel good about what they're purchasing because it is in concert with their values. And anyone can do that. Whether you're Muslim or not, you could provide those goods and services, but Muslim entrepreneurs don't want to be left behind, right? And this is a, a warning I tell them all the time is like, if you as a Muslim entrepreneur do not emerge and come up with something innovative for that space, I guarantee you, that all the big multinationals will figure it out and they will dominate that space and they'll figure out how to make it value conscious and whatever. And you're starting to see now, you know, Muslim fashions developed by some of the biggest fashion houses in the world because they're starting to clue in on this. Yeah. 
Um, so we have a, this window of opportunity, you know, that if Muslims can can go in there, create those spaces, drive those spaces, even if they get acquired or whatever, they're still part of it. Or they can sit back and just be just be sold a bill of goods, right? This is the time. So that's why we're that's why there's a little bit of urgency behind what we're doing, why we want to make sure that by the time that the rest of the world figures out that there's an economy here where everyone can make money yeah. and that, you know, people have a, a market demand that they're going to find market leaders already in that space that they're going to have to work with in order to develop that, 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 that space for themselves. Um, and that's fine. You know, I want the, I want the big companies of the world to be a part of it, but as partners, not as people who are running it themselves. That's the problem that we're, I think we're trying to solve here. I'm going to pause for a moment because I'm going to ask you a question that I may uh, segue into immediately from where we are now sure. that I may splice and put, yeah. put earlier. Um, so, you know, there you were in Silicon Valley in the mid 90s. And I would imagine that at that time, kind of someone kind of explicitly thinking about their 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 faith and technology was fairly rare. Um, but I imagine that that today it's less rare. You know, everyone knows about Silicon Valley yeah. and, and has an, an idea in their imagination about what that place is and what goes on there. Is is there such a thing as sort of a, a Muslim subculture within Silicon Valley? And, and what does it look like? There is. You know, when I was in Silicon Valley, what I found really interesting is that, you know, it's one of those few places in the world where being Muslim is not a hindrance to success. As a matter of fact, I considered it an advantage. How Mo so? Most... Because Muslims were, there were some really smart Muslims in Silicon Valley and they were appreciated for being that way. And being a Muslim executive at a, at a tech firm was not, you know, it was almost considered an asset. Like, oh, you got one of the smart ones. Um, because, and, and because they all interacted with each other. I mean, when I was doing my startups in Silicon Valley, all of my venture capital and my co-working arrangements, my smartest employees, I, I mainly got through mining my Muslim networks. Yeah. It was, it's, it's, it's a small network, but a very easily navigable network. And uh, that continues to this day. So there's been 20, 30 years. I mean, some of the investors in my first startups were Muslim pioneers of Silicon Valley who had been there since the 60s, who were recognized by Silicon Valley itself as some of their pioneers. So Muslims have been part of that ecosystem from day one. So, so who are some of those kind of little known oh, pioneers Oh, I, I, I have to shout out some of the people who invested in my first uh, startup. Uh, there's a gentleman named Salam Qureshi who, uh, who he, 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 for, for those of you who are feeling with Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road is where the, uh, where the, uh, all the big venture capital firms are. He lives on Sand Hill Road. Okay. So he's been there from the beginning and he's one of these pioneers who, who's, who's, you know, nurtured, mentored startups, Muslim and not in Silicon Valley. And he, he believed in me and he backed me financially and he backed me with his expertise and I'm forever grateful and thankful to him for having done that. Um, and I know he's helped other people. There's another gentleman who was also an investor in my company named Miriam Ron, who is a serial entrepreneur, has 200 patents to his name. He's running accelerators, uh, not just in Silicon Valley, but around the country and continues to be a, 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 a source of strength and inspiration to entrepreneurs of all stripes. Um, and these people are, are, are figures that, you know, they are the, the people that inspired the, you know, 
uh, Omar Hamoui's of the world. He, Omar Hamoui was a founder of AdMob, who was, which was sold to Google for $750 million. Um, people like Khalid Hussein, who was a co-founder of, of, of Tilt, um, a crowdfunding uh, a startup. Um, and there, and, and the list goes on. There's just, there's, there's tons of people who are part of that space. And these are people also um, who, again, have not left their identities behind. So to this day, you know, I can search for mentors in pretty much any different field in Silicon Valley through this Muslim network and connect them to startups that really need their expertise. And because there's that affinity, uh, they're able to get that help. You know, like I, I love being able to mine the Muslim network and get investment for a startup that needs it to get advice for another startup to to get an entryway into a big company you know uh you know the the the, the fintech startup that we're doing zakatify it was made possible because i mined my muslim network and found really high people up in silicon valley companies that i needed to be needed to get in the door with um and 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 that's that's a really special thing and so um this 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 economy has so much potential. Um, and I feel like we've only scratched the surface. Another slight pause. Yeah. So final question that, that I want to ask you. Um, if you could design any fantasy application, what, what, what's your fantasy app with a sort of Muslimy angle to it? What, what, what would that be? What would it do? That's a really hard question to ask because you know, uh, I, I, I have requ my requirements for doing startups have changed over the years. I, I, I kind of there's 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 something that we a lot of Muslim entrepreneurs joke about called the 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 free the law model or the free law model, which is that a lot of Muslim entrepreneurs uh, start by being social entrepreneurs and they usually they usually came to the space with this idea that they want to give back. And so, you know, people who give back make horrible entrepreneurs because they don't price their, they don't, they don't want to earn money. And so they give they, their they stuff away. They don't get the balance right. Yeah, they don't have yeah. the balance right. Doing and good so, and making money, yeah. So I, I tell entrepreneurs who approach me, if you can't imagine your company scaling to 100 million in revenue, go rethink it. And it's not because I want them just to make money for money's sake, but I think that if you embed social impact into a business and the market validates that by buying your product, because you offer something of value and they pay for it, then that's the best way to amplify social good. Again, if, if that social good is embedded in your business model. So like launch good, for example, social good is embedded in their business model. Yeah. So I want them to succeed and I want them to go as far as they can, because even if they make a lot of money doing what they're doing, they're helping a lot of people. Zakatify, which we're going to be launching hopefully in a few months, will hopefully do the same thing. Yeah. I can see that scaling to incredible amount of money, but it's also what we hope is going to embed a lot of different socially redeemable values that will hopefully drive entrepreneur, uh, drive philanthropy and drive uh, awareness of causes in ways that have not been done before. Okay, so but Shahad, you're a you're answering this question as someone who actually takes business models seriously and and like knows how to do this stuff successfully. I I just mean all those considerations aside, yes. what in your mind would be a cool app to have that has sort of a Muslimy or Islamic angle to it? What 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 would that be? What would it do? So if I could if I used as my baseline an app that I believe that would benefit a Muslim more than anything else and help them resonate with their identity and help them um help them navigate this world that we're in 
I think something that allows them to connect with their tradition in a way that puts them in charge of it hmm. um, so that they, they can figure out their own answers for themselves, um, break out of this idea that they have to, you know, find an authority figure and line up behind him or her, usually him, and just take what they say without questioning it. I want, uh, so an app that helps people take control of their Muslim identity in that way, I think would be a game changer. Now, because it's hard to put a revenue model behind that, who would really build that? Who would really design that? And everybody has competing interests and nobody yeah. wants to cede control of anything. Yeah. So it's going to be, it's, it's one of those things that's very hard to do. But if I had like a million dollars to spend on something, I would probably do something like that. Do you have thoughts of what it would look like? How it would work? I do. I do. And I, I, I'm reluctant to give out too much of what I think it would oh, work. Like. Because, because you got to, got to hold your IP close. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I mean, but, but, but I'm happy to give the, the, the bigger vision out there. I think that that's, that's the Holy grail when it comes to, you know, if there's a Holy grail in Islam, that's the one that I think would mean a lot to the individuals, even if it made a lot of institutions and scholars upset. Yeah. Because that's, what's going to guarantee the growth of a, of a humane and integral and, 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 you know, meaningful religion for people. All right. So ulama of the world, watch out. <laughs> watch Shahid Amanullah is I'm coming for you. Coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> Shahid, thank you so much. It's been fantastic to, to chat with you today. Um, and we're really grateful to you for giving so generously of your time. Thank you so much for having me.